a sheep named Mitford. Mitford was a curious sheep, not all that bright, not particularly brave. In fact, Mitford was altogether quite average. Nevertheless, Mitford had outlived many of his fellow sheep for one simple reason. He listened to his master. The first time Mitt, as we will call him from here on out, inadvertently wandered from the flock was almost his last. While grazing, he caught sight of a butterfly and he followed it unknowingly to the edge of a cliff. And a sudden shudder passed through his body at the impending danger. Not at the impending danger, but at the stern voice of his shepherd. And a command which stopped him in his tracks moments before he stepped off the edge. On another occasion, chaos had engulfed the hillside. A pack of wolves had caught up to the wandering herd and was picking off Mitt's family one by one. And amidst the fear and the confusion, he caught a terrible sight that made him tremble. His angry shepherd was wielding his rod and landing blow after blow on the jaws of attacking wolves. Mitford froze in awe until his dreamlike state was rattled away by the order to run down the trail to safety. For years, Mitt not only survived, but thrived under the strong voice of his shepherd. It sounds like the beginning of a children's book. In fact, it's a parable of our lives, it's a parable of words. Words of rebuke, words of urgency, words that make one tremble. Words that make one stop. And how Mitford responded to those words is what gave Mitford life. As we close this study of the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe that there are two things that the Lord wants to remind us of, wants to say to us this morning. And the first one is this. We have a shepherd who speaks. We have a shepherd who speaks. In the midst of a world of chaos, in the midst of a world of frustration, you do not wander alone. You just have to listen for his voice. After the overarching conclusion that we find in verse 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, this passage almost takes an editorial turn in verses 9 through 12 as it moves towards its conclusion. In fact, many have concluded that verses 9 through 12 are not written by Solomon. They're written by someone different, an editor of some sort. And and I don't think that's necessarily something that we have to conclude. I mean, think about it. Jesus himself spoke at times in the third person. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, Jesus said at one point. 
And so it's certainly possible that Solomon is doing the same. And I think it's even probable that Solomon here in verse 9 is, is shifting gears and taking a step back and speaking of himself in the third person. But whether we believe that or not, it really doesn't matter. The message is the same. For the intent of Solomon, both here and in other places like the book of Proverbs, which we have mined over and over again in this study, has been to be generous with the wisdom, the God-given wisdom that he has been entrusted with. Verse 9, he says he's been careful in the things he has written. And he didn't want to just write words on a page. No, he wanted us, as, most, as we have seen most recently, last week, he wanted us to feel his words. And so what did Solomon do throughout this book? He painted pictures. Verse 10 says, pictures about our existence. But here's the thing. Solomon speaks about what he said. All these words, all these collected sayings, Solomon says, are ultimately not from him. They are given by one shepherd. Now you notice in your Bibles, in the translation that many of you have, uh, the Bible capitalizes the word shepherd. And I think it does so for a good reason, because Solomon isn't speaking about himself. He is speaking about God. Jacob confesses in Genesis 48 that God has been his shepherd. David confesses poetically and beautifully and famously in Psalm 23 that Yahweh is his shepherd. And now Solomon affirms this as well. And in doing so, Solomon makes an astounding claim about the words that he has written. All the words that we have just studied. You see, Solomon is self-aware that his words, that his wisdom is inspired. It's God-breathed. And so he says to us again this morning, you have a shepherd who is speaking. Therefore, these words are profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Last week, we were reminded to remember our Creator, right? The one who is high and lifted up over all things. But the metaphor that's given this week is different. It has a richness all its own, for the shepherd doesn't just speak from the high places. No, he speaks from the valleys that we walk through. The shepherd doesn't just speak high above the storm. No, this shepherd stands in the storm with us, being pounded by the elements like us. Brothers and sisters, this shepherd is Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who speaks. Jesus is the one who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the one who knows those who are his. And so Solomon's point here is this is wisdom from Jesus. This is life from Jesus. 
And he says that these words given by your shepherd, spoken by him to his people, to his flock, are given for two reasons. They're given to sting you, and they're given to stabilize you. Solomon shows us this in, in two vivid metaphors that communicate these two things. First, in verse 11. Well, they're both found in verse 11, but first, he says, like goads. Like goads. Now, what is a goad? We don't use goads, most of us, all of us, probably. A goad is simply a long, pointed stick that in an agricultural society like the one that Solomon wrote into was used to prod cattle into action. Goads didn't feel good. They stung. But in the end, goads accomplished their purpose. Goads moved the beast in the direction that his master wanted him to go. And Solomon says, these words from your shepherd are like goads to sting you, to prod you. But not just that, these words are like nails. What an image he gives us here. And I couldn't help but think of the Lord Jesus and those rough hands, those calloused hands of the Lord Jesus when He was here on earth. who Hands that had firmly fixed many a board as He grew up in the home of a carpenter. Hands that had fixed many a board by the driving of nails. And here Solomon is saying, His words are meant to do the same. His words are meant to find a fixed place lodged in your memory, creating stability in your life. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And the writer to the Hebrews says in 619, we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. So the questions before us this morning from this closing of this book are, how do we listen to our shepherd? What place does his word have in our lives? What, what place, how, how have we taken these words of Ecclesiastes into our lives? Over these past several months, have we, have we felt their sting? Have we known their stabilization? Have we recognized that our shepherd is speaking to us? And that he is good. And that he is for our good. It's a reminder and it's a call for us to recommit ourselves to walk with our shepherd by his word. But this passage isn't just a declaration of the inspiration of Scripture, of the God-breathed nature of what Solomon just wrote, but it's also a declaration of its sufficiency. Look at verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. 
reading that verse, I was curious, so I looked at Google and asked Google how many books had been published in the world. 129,854,880 books have been published in our world. And I'm sure that number just went up in the time it took me to say it. We know that most of those books are not worth reading, but many of those books we read anyway. Last year, one magazine declared that Seattle was the most well-read city in the United States. And Seattle consistently ranks in the top 10 of the most intellectual cities in America. In other words, what can we say about the culture that we live in? We think that we know our stuff. And with the stuff that we don't know, we determine that that matter obviously can't be settled, that more questions need to be asked, and we'll eventually get to the bottom of it. You know what? Paul spoke against this very attitude in 2 Timothy 3. He says, speaking of the godlessness in the last days, he says, for among them are those who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Isn't that interesting? See, God's Word reminds us this morning that the matter, some matters, can indeed be settled. While some mystery always remains with God, He has spoken clearly. And so the call to us is childlike trust. C.S. Lewis, the well-known British author of Narnia fame, also wrote other allegories. And he wrote an allegory called The Great Divorce. And in this thin allegory, he describes an interaction between a man. It's a very interesting book. He describes this interaction between a man who is living in the suburbs of hell and is being given an invitation into heaven. And so the Spirit comes to him and says, will you believe in me? Will you come with me to the mountains? And the man replies, well, that is a plan. I am perfectly ready to consider it. But of course, I should require some assurances. I should want a guarantee that you are taking me to a place where I will find a wider sphere of usefulness and scope for the talents that God has given me and an atmosphere of free inquiry. And the Spirit says, no, I can promise you none of these things. No sphere of influence. You're not needed there at all. No scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them, and no atmosphere for inquiry, for I will bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers. And you shall see the face of God. To which the man replies, ah, but we must interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind. Must it not? And the Spirit finally says, listen, 
Once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you found them. Become that child again, even now. And the man says, ah, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And he goes off to hell. The man was lost because he was unwilling to believe the answers that are right in front of him. Our shepherd has spoken. The shepherd still speaks. That's the first truth that I want us to be reminded of this morning. But there's a second. There's a second. As we move beyond verse 12 into the last two verses, we are reminded that we were made to fear Him and follow His voice. If the shepherd has spoken and still speaks, we are reminded at the close of this book of wisdom that we were made to fear Him and follow His voice. And it all boils down to this. This is the end of the matter, he says. This is what life under the sun ought to be about. This is what it means to be truly human. Fear God and keep His commandments. Now immediately that word fear, what is it about that word fear? You might remember we studied a couple years ago, almost three years ago now, we studied the book of Proverbs. And in that study I talked about Martin Luther's distinction between two types of fear. Servial fear and family fear. See, there's the fear of slaves towards their masters. The fear of punishment. This dreadful anxiety. It's the kind of fear that Jesus spoke of when He told the story in Matthew 25 of the parable of the talents. And He says, Master, this servant says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. You can almost see Him cowering reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid. When Solomon calls us to fear God, this is not the way he calls us to fear Him. Because our standing is not one of slaves. Our standing is one of sons, one of daughters. 1 John chapter 4 is our assurance. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so we read of that judgment in verse 14, and that ought to invoke a terror and a dread in the heart of the unbeliever, but for those of us who follow and know Christ, it is not a fear of condemnation. It's a fear of gravity of awe, of respect. You see, ours is a family fear. A fear that a child has for his father. A fear not of destruction, but a fear of discipline. Going back to our opening parable, and in the, whole, in the language of this passage, it's a healthy fear that we have for God. A fear of a sheep before its master. A fear that is captured by who He is. 
that is controlled by what He has done. John Murray spoke to this, I think, so well. John Murray was an old theologian from, uh, from Princeton, and he wrote, The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and God is not in all the thoughts of the wicked. The first thought of the godly man in every circumstance is God's relation to him and it, and his and its relation to God. That is God consciousness, and that is what the fear of God entails. The fear of God in us is that frame of heart and mind which reflects our apprehension of who and what God is and who and what God is will tolerate nothing less than total commitment to Him. And so when Solomon exhorts us to fear God and keep His commandments, this is the kind of fear that we need to have. This is the kind of fear that we need to grow in. The kind of fear that controls us. The kind of fear that Paul spoke about to the Philippian church where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, how we live flows. Our obedience flows from what we believe about God. And if we don't believe that God is worthy of fear, then we're not going to live with any regard for Him. So what does it mean to fear God and to keep His commandments? Well, that's another sermon series. It encompasses all it means to follow Jesus. I mean, we could look back, we could put on those fearing God lenses, and we could look back at all the words that we have camped out on in this entire series. Our limits. Remember that? We're frustrated by the limits of of our understanding, the limits of our lives that, resent, that, that end in death. And yet if we fear God, if we worship a God who has no limits, it changes our perspective. Our treasure, our time, justice and injustice in our world, our community, our words, our wealth, our adversity, our rest, our joy, our foolishness, our certainty. We could go through all of those with the lenses of fearing God. And we could be reminded that His sovereignty, His providence, His goodness, His immensity, His unchangeableness all flow from fear. This is our posture. And this is also our pasture. I know I've quoted a lot of things this morning, but I want to end with one final quote. It's thinking about the Lord is our shepherd, the Lord who speaks and walks, calls us to fear Him, calls us to follow Him. One of the most helpful commentaries that I used in this series was written by a pastor and he closed his commentary with I think how I want to close this series with this paragraph. He says this, as we look out at the once, the pastures, the paths, the deadness of the soul, the valley of death's shadow, 
and the presence of enemies. We engage in those realities under the sun by contemplating God as our shepherd. This shepherd is the Lord, the want provider, the rest giver, the pasture and path leader and the soul restorer. He is the valley walker, the with me overcomer, the comforter, the table preparer, the head anointer, the cup filler, the goodness and mercy sender, the house dweller, and the forever all the days of my life secure. This is our God. This is the God who has spoken. Listen to Him. Fear Him. Follow Him. And live. Let's pray together. Great Father in Heaven, we thank You this morning that You have spoken. That You speak to Your people today. And that You speak in a way a shepherd speaks. Words of stern rebuke words of calming comfort, words of instruction and action. Oh Father, I pray that we, as we go from this place, that we would have a posture of fear before our Shepherd that that fear would be the pasture of our lives as we walk with You, as we listen for Your voice. Father, we thank You for this study, for this book of wisdom, and for all that it has been to us. For the wisdom that it has given to our lives. I pray that You would work in each of us that which is pleasing to You. For the glory of Your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.